At the root, there are really two embittered worldviews that are engaged in a struggle. On the one hand, secular liberalism, and the, on the other, uh, religious conservatism. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the Supreme Court's misguided decision earlier this year allowing the 40-foot towering Bladensburg Cross to remain on public land in Maryland. Uh, I think that if you are going to believe in God and talk about it as being the same thing as believing in your wife, then you need to provide the, the same kind of evidence. And we're also a religious success story. We have gone forth and multiplied. But now we have to stop, or it will be our downfall. In March 2001, he killed a man and ate him, along with a glass of fine red wine. A crime so bizarre, it horrified and mystified the world. I tried debating with you people, but you said, oh, God, damn it, he's this magical man. He doesn't f***ing exist. He's about as real. He's even less real than Mickey's f***ing mouse. The Bible is no more proof than God exists, than a comic book is no more proof than Superman exists. Okay. Paul wrote in the Bible, God is not the author of confusion. But can you think of a single book that's caused more confusion than that Bible? Here, we discuss real issues of life from a biblical worldview. This is episode 3 with William J. Federer. What is socialism? Welcome to Worldview Clash Clash. So yes, socialism is appealing for millennials, not just as a system of economic institutions, not just as an alternative political arrangement, but also because there is a morality of collective solidarity and community and equality that uh, fosters an account of reciprocity that is different from what one might find in liberal ideas. Liberalism, by some description, is, the, is a philosophy of individualism, of individual rights, of the protection of individual property, and the idea is that collective welfare arises out of the uncoordinated, spontaneous interaction between individuals who don't necessarily take an active interest into each other. Socialism, on the other hand, has a sense of opportunity and collective flourishing that is embedded into the very idea of society, which is at the center of the, the, the word socialism. There's a sense of collective freedom that is the condition for the development of individual freedoms. There's a sense in which community and an interest in community is conditional to the development of individual opportunity. <music> What is socialism? Not what do people think that it is. We'll get there in a second, but what is socialism? Well, all study on socialism goes back to Plato. He is a Greek philosopher. He lived in Athens, 380 BC. And in passing, he writes about Atlantis, this highly structured civilization that uh, sinks in the sea. And he keeps referring back to that as this ideal structured society. In contrast, democracy is an unstructured society. And so Plato talks about the democracy in Athens. And he says a democracy, demos means people, krasi means rule. He said a democracy, the people rule, and their chief characteristic is tolerance. 
They learn how to tolerate each other. He says it's, it is the most charming form of government. It's like an embroidery patchwork with lots of colors. It's like a bazaar where you can buy any viewpoint. And he says, then they begin to tolerate people that are a little bit off. And then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and broad daylight looting and nobody does anything about it. Mm. And convicted criminals are let out of jail and they just wander the street and nobody does anything about it. And then he says it creeps into the families and the sons are disrespectful to the father. And if the father corrects the son, the son just shakes his head and walks away. And the teachers want to put themselves on the level with the student. Then he says it creeps into their morality. And the young man gives into libertinism and useless and unnecessary pleasures, even incest and unnatural union. Mm. Yes, that's what he's talking about. It's this casting off of self-restraint, abandonment to passion. And then he said, it's a democracy. They vote to spread the wealth around. Now the treasury's empty. Mm. And then they vote to take money from the rich people. Now there's no rich people left. And then there's a shortage, and they began to say, well, don't cut back on what I'm used to getting. Don't cut back on my free stuff. It turns into bickering, chaos, anarchy, fighting, lawlessness. And in this confusion, they begin to say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when some governor comes along and says, I can fix it. I just need some emergency powers. And they finally stand in the chariot of state, holding the reins of power, and they are revealed as the tyrant. Mm. So democracy without morals and virtue ends in domestic chaos, out of which a tyrant usurps power. Plato said it's inevitable because since democracy is based on the people having virtue and the people really don't have virtue, he says if you give people a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they will always give up their virtue to save their life. Now, I contrast in the book to ancient Israel's, their first 400-year period out of Egypt, and they were based on virtue, but they had a big magnet in the sky called God, and everybody was attempting to be virtuous because they were accountable to this God. Athens did not have that. By Plato's time, Athens had a bunch of fickle deities that nobody believed in anyway. And so it was just the citizens being virtuous as long as it was the in thing to be virtuous. Uh, and, and Plato says that because people really don't have virtue, he, he writes this in 380 BC. He said, if someone was born that truly had virtue, the world would scourge him and crucify him. He writes this in 380 BC. Imagine that. Anyway. So Plato says democracy without virtue ends in chaos, out of which a tyrant arises, and since it's inevitable, the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. He is the philosopher king. He is the head of gold. And his political enforcer class, the political cronies, the deep state, uh, they are the arms and chest of silver. And so together, the head of gold and the arms and chest of silver make up the ruling class. And they get all the favors, they get all the benefits, they vote themselves exemptions from laws, they get to get their hair styled when nobody else does, right? And then everyone else is in the ruled class. They are the abdomen of iron and bronze. And the ruled class own no property, have no privacy. The government takes care of them all, but the government controls them all. The government decides who gets to have children. 
The government takes the children away from the parents and indoctrinates them with noble lies, actually calls them lies, before they've been affected with the habits of their parents. It's like a common core type of thing. And, uh, and this is socialism. It goes all the way back to Plato, a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. And you have to get rid of the middle class to put this into effect because the middle class is the only thing that can challenge the ruling class. Mm. So that's the roots of socialism. And if we can skip forward 2,000 years, we come to uh, Columbus discovering America. And 20 years later, Sir Thomas More writes, Island of Utopia. And the word utopia means nowhere. It's a fictitious island off the coast of South America. And uh, so the island of Utopia is written as a dialogue, which is the Greek style of a conversation with someone. That someone is a traveler named Hyphendaeus, which means peddler of nonsense. And this island of Utopia is a highly structured society mirrored after Atlantis. And uh, you have the ruling class and the ruled class. And the ruled class own no property. They live in identical three-story houses. There are no locks on anybody's doors. They have no privacy. There's no ale houses, no coffee houses. There's no place for a private meeting. Everyone eats in communal dining halls like a monastery. And the government decides who gets to have children. There are no families. The government takes the children away from the parents brings them in and indoctrinates them and even chooses the children's careers that they have to work the rest of their life. And everyone is tracked everywhere they go with an internal passport. If you are caught without your passport, it is a lifetime of slavery. This is utopia, this perfectly structured society. And um, well, that's written by Sir Thomas More as a satire, a critique of Henry VIII wanting to control everybody and switching from Catholic to Anglican and making himself the head of the church and killing anybody that doesn't immediately go along with him. And, mm. uh, well, Henry VIII uh, actually killed Sir Thomas More. So uh, he was correct in his criticism of Henry VIII wanting to control everybody. Now we skip forward another century, and it's 1626. Uh, this is when you have... Um, Sir Francis Bacon, and he writes, The New Atlantis. So now he's directly referring back to Plato's Atlantis. And Sir Francis Bacon has an island in the South Pacific off the coast of Peru. And somebody's washed up on this island, and it's a highly structured society with a ruling class and a ruled class. A little more scientific because the scientific revolution has taken place by this time. Sir Isaac Newton discovering laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of optics. And so now it's more of a scientific type of careers on these islands, but nevertheless, ruling class, ruled class. Mm. Someone, someone writes a parody on it, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, <laughs> right? Here's Gulliver washed up on this island of Lilliputia, right? And it's got a ruling class that is ridiculous and wanting to control everybody. And the ruled class where everything, uh, their careers are determined and their lives are all, you know, they're, they're put in jail and prison and so forth. And, and so uh, why is all this important? The pilgrims. 
So the Pilgrims, when they originally came to Massachusetts, they were a company colony. Uh, now, for those not familiar, uh, there were no companies in the Middle Ages. Uh, there were guilds, which were uh, little groups of merchants that would have a thousand laws if you want to open up a shoe store in some town. Uh, but there were no companies. And so if you wanted to do some big endeavor, like sail around the world looking for spices, you had to hit up some rich guy or a king. Mm. Well, when the first, when the Reformation happened, you had the first companies in Holland uh, called the Dutch East India Company, where people could invest in a boat going to Indonesia. When it came back filled full of nutmeg, you'd get paid a profit. <laughs> if you wanted to bell your interest, you, you would go down to the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And if the boat was captured by Muslim pirates or something, uh, that's when they invented insurance companies. But Britain, Britain formed the British East India Company, and then British formed the Virginia Company and the London Company. So the Pilgrims were a branch of the London Company. So these were investors that invested money in the Pilgrim endeavor, wanting to make a profit somehow. Eventually, the Pilgrims paid it off with beaver skins. Uh, but in Virginia, it was tobacco. But nevertheless, the Pilgrims were originally a company colony, and the investors wrote bylaws based on Plato. Mm. Everything was owned in common. So the bylaws say everything gotten by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading shall go into ye common stock. And everyone's livelihood comes out of ye common stock. And William Bradford, the governor of the Pilgrims, said they almost starved to death. No one wanted to go out and plant. He said the young man objected to doing twice as much work as the old guy, but didn't get any more recompense. The old guy objected to being classed in labor with the young and considered it a dishonor. The women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. And William Bradford, said uh, this proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato applauded of latter times by those in Europe. William Bradford of the Pilgrims knew they were trying to live out this theoretical Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, and he says that it failed. He says this was tried by good and honest men, which shows the, um, the uh, this communistic plan of life itself of owning property in common uh, as if they were wiser than God. And he said, in order that we would not suffer want another winter with no food, we had to come up with a fitter plan. After much discussion, it was decided that every family would get their own plot of land. He said, this made all hands more industrious. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them where before they would have alleged weakness and to enforce them would have been considered great oppression. So, Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, theoretical on paper, sounds great, everything's owned in common. When the pilgrims actually try to live this thing out, they nearly starve to death and they scrap it and they give everybody their own bottle. Of it. So this was America's original experience with communism and William Bradford actually called it a communistic plan. Now, we can skip forward we got the American Revolution, and then there's the French Revolution. That's the next big installment in the development of socialism. So the motto of the French Revolution was liberté, equalité, fraternité. Well, liberty, yeah, that's individually experienced. 
fraternité, uh, fraternity, that's the French word for socialism. It's a group, a collective, a fraternity. It's the state, the socialist state. And equality. Equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was pilgrims were the first experiment of socialism in America, and it failed. And so now we can go forward to the French Revolution. Uh, we're talking 1792, and the motto of the French Revolution was was liberté, equalité, fraternité. Liberty is individually experienced, and fraternity is the French word for socialism, a collective, a group, and the socialist state. And then equality can be understood two ways. In America, equality was equal treatment before the law and equal opportunity. But in France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the socialist state, thinks you have too much stuff, it can take away your stuff and redistribute it and kill you. Mm. And so that's what happened in France. Uh, first, they killed the king and queen. Uh, they chopped off the heads of Louis XVI and his mm. wife, Marie Antoinette. Then they chopped off the heads of all the royalty and things did not get any better. They chopped off the heads of the wealthy. They were selfish. They had too much stuff. Things did not get any better. Then they chopped off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. They had food and supplies. We don't have food and supplies. They're selfish. We're going to loot their stores and redistribute the stuff. And then they chopped off the heads of the hoarders. They found out that some people were storing up extra food in their house. We don't have enough. They got extra. They're selfish. And then chopped off the heads of the preachers who were preaching against the head chopping off stuff. Somehow they're to blame for holding the country back from this new perfect society. Then they chop off the heads of the former revolutionaries, the ones that used to chop off heads and saw that it was not turning out as it, as it was promised and they are starting to drag their feet. Somehow they're to blame. So they get purged and they get their heads chopped off. 40,000 people had their heads chopped off in Paris, France in this installation of socialism in France. And if that was not enough, they send their army to the Vendée, a rural area far away from the capital, and they go to the Vendée and they kill 300,000 men, women, and children. Mm. It's considered the first modern genocide. And so you have this wonderful socialist state, but as in the Plato model, that uh, democracy without morals and virtue ends in chaos out of which a tyrant arises, well, uh, it turned into chaos in France. Uh, they uh, wanted to get rid of God. Uh, so they turned churches into temples of reason. Uh, they would put prostitute uh, in Notre Dame Cathedral, cover her with a sheet, and said, this is the goddess of reason, let's worship her. They would offend at its statues. So they pulled down the statues of good King Henry IV, and they dug up the graves of Saint Genevieve, the patron saint of Paris, and, and then they uh, decide that they're offended at uh, crosses and they outlaw crosses. Then they outlaw Christian education. Then they outlaw uh, the Sabbath, right? We got a seven-day week with a Sabbath rest. So they came up with a 10-day week called the Decade Week. Each day had 10 hours. Each hour had 100 minutes. Each minute had 100 seconds. Uh, they said 10 was the number of man because you count with 10 fingers. 
And so they called it the metric system. And they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. Nothing good came and, out of this. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then they did not even want done in the year of the Lord. So they made 1792 the new year one. It was an intentional effort to erase the Christian past so that they could usher in this socialist, perfect, utopian society. Mm. Well, uh, democracy without morals and virtue ends in chaos out of which a tyrant arises, right? So here's this French socialist experiment. They had no God, no morals, and no virtue, and it turned into chaos, and out of it came a tyrant named Napoleon. Mm. And... Um, uh, now, Na Napoleon conquers across Europe and kills six million people in the process. And uh, then there's a German kingdom uh, named Prussia. And the Prussian king said, we can't get conquered that easy again. We need to strengthen our state. And so he found a philosopher named Hegel, who taught at the University of Berlin. And you know Hegel because... There was a radical student group at the University of Berlin called the Young Hegelians, and a member of it was Karl Marx. So what did Hegel say? Hegel said the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God. All the worth that a human being has, he has only through the state. He says the state observes no abstract rules of good and bad. Mm. So what do you mean abstract rule of good and bad? You mean like the Ten Commandments? Right. You don't observe the Ten Commandments. It's just a power grab by the state. And if you help the state to grab more power, then your life is worth something. Mm -hmm. And if you challenge the state, uh, then your life is worth nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Uh, a century later, 1933, you had the uh, Nazi uh, National Socialist Workers Party, Socialist, and um, they uh, instituted... Uh, the New York Times reported that the Nazi Ministry of Justice authorized physicians to end the sufferings of incurable patients, but it goes on, no life still valuable to the state mm. will be wantonly destroyed. So your life is only of worth if the state thinks so. This affected Pol Pot a few years later, who wanted to bring socialism and communism into Cambodia, and he kills a third of his country. He says, to keep you is no benefit, and to lose you is no loss. So your life is only of worth if you help the state grab power. Wow. Now, if we can walk it through a four-stage process, we see the pilgrims had a covenant. After they scrapped their company form of government, the pilgrims came up with a, uh, they're a covenant. So they got rid of the company and they got a covenant form of government. What's a covenant form of government? It's people in agreement with each other, but it's more than that. It's people committed to helping each other. So they're in a covenant and they get rights from the creator and they're accountable to the creator, right? So it's like a, a little triangle. In the next century after the pilgrims, covenant turned into social contract. And it's just people in agreement with each other. You're not committed to it. You just agree on things. And if God is there, he's distant so this comes from the Age of Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, as I mentioned, with Sir Isaac Newton discovering laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of optics, Robert Boyle discovering laws of pressure. And so some theologian says, well, maybe God created laws 
and like a guy winds up a clock and sets it on a shelf and all the gears turn, maybe everything's just following these laws. And so if God is there, he is detached. He is distant. He is impersonal. The extreme of this is God is just some impersonal force in the universe, right? So you go from Pilgrim Covenant, rights from God, accountable to God, to the Age of Enlightenment social contract, just an agreement uh, with a distant God. Next century, it turns into the French Revolution, where it's social contract with no God, intentionally with no God. You get your rights from the group, you're accountable to the group. And the next century turns into socialism, where the state is God. Mm. And if the state decides that you're not pulling your weight, the state can kill you. Mm. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote The Social Contract, writes, if the state says to a citizen, it is expedient for the state that you should die, that citizen ought to die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. Oh my goodness. There's a, a great quote from um, Eisenhower. He said, in some countries, the state claims to be the author of human rights. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. Our founders had to refer to the creator in order to make the revolutionary experiment make sense. We had to go above the government's head and mm -hmm. say, we have rights from a source higher than the government. It's the creator. The government's job is to protect our creator-given rights. And if the government violates our, our rights, we have a right to rebel against the government. Mm. And um, anyway, so we go from Pilgrim Covenant to Age of Enlightenment social contract with a distant God to French Revolution social contract with no God to socialism, Marxism, where the state is God. I grew up in Canada, okay? We have right. socialized medicine. And I am, I'm here to tell you that this line that you get on all of the political shows from people is that it's a failure. The system is a failure in Canada. It is not a failure in Canada. We have to say yes to socialism, to the word and everything. So this is where you scream, but he's a socialist! Yeah, he is a socialist Democrat. Now let me explain what that is. He's a Democrat. He just believes that people who don't have the same advantages as you and me should be given the same advantages as you and me. Good Lord. So now, knowing now with all of this history under our belt, which is a lot, but it's good, this is a good foundation, what is the appeal today? I mean, here we are in 2020, and we have a greater number of younger people excited about socialism than ever in history that we can see. A good question. Well, socialism is the eternal bait and switch. It's like a... Uh, car salesman, right? The, the old saying about a fly-by-night used car salesman, for those not familiar, uh, before the days of the internet, uh, you would wake up and there would be a corner uh, in, in the little town uh, area and there'd be some used cars. And people would go up and buy a used car and 
they would do things like um, take a car with a really bad transmission and fill it full of sawdust. So uh, it would, you wouldn't hear the clinks and the clanks, uh, but it would last only like a week. And then after a week, your car would be like clinking and clanking, and you'd be smelling wood burning, and and you would go back to the corner, and the whole little used car business was gone. <laughs> they would leave in the middle of the night and go to another town, and um, and so this became sort of a um, uh, a proverb of a fly-by-night um, used car dealership. In other words, they promised one thing with all kinds of flags and a special sale and everything, but they delivered something that was different. Socialism is the eternal bait and switch. It's the eternal promising of one thing, delivering another. It promises heaven, it delivers hell. It promises uh, a utopia, it delivers a dystopia. It promises a dream, where everything's free and everything's taken care of and it produces a nightmare. Mm. There's a, there's a, a quote from Gerald Ford and he uh, was the president in the 1970s before Nixon, I mean, excuse me, before, um, after Nixon, but before Reagan and uh, Gerald Ford and before Carter. But Gerald Ford said, the government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. And he must have used that quote a hundred times because I've read through all of the past president's addresses, uh, except the most previous president's past addresses. But Gerald Ford said, when I was in Congress, I would sit there and I would listen to them proposing a new federal program. And I would say to myself, don't they realize that the government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have? Mm. It's like the way a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood. They can come in with guns or they can give away free drugs and get everybody hooked. Mm. They take over one way or the other. So how do you institute socialism? You can come in with tanks or you can have people vote in socialism by promising them a whole lot of stuff that they will never, ever give. Mm. And so uh, this is the, um, the eternal bait and switch. It's this uh, a, a, a siren song. That's the term. Uh, Ulysses, the Homer, and the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and there was Ulysses, and he was a, a, a warrior, but then he was on a ship with his Greek soldiers, and they were going back to this, this island, and they had these sirens, and that was the name of these Greek women that would sing along the beach, and they would sing so beautifully, and the, the sailors would come close to the shore to hear them, only to get wrecked on the rocks, and then all the villagers would go out and robbed the ship of all the stuff that was wrecked. And um, and so it was called the Siren's Song. So it wasn't a siren like on the front of an ambulance. It was a, a beautiful song. And Ulysses, as he was sailing past, uh, he wanted to hear the song. Uh, and so he told his men to uh, fill their ears with wax so they couldn't uh, hear, but to tie him to the mast and leave his ears unplugged so he can hear them singing. And, um, and he says, no matter what I tell you, don't untie me. And, and so they were able to sail past the island and he heard the beautiful music, and, but uh, they got past it. But anyway, this idea of you, you have something really beautiful calling them, but it's calling them to their death. Mm. So that's what socialism is, this promise, 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 but it never has, it's always delivered totalitarianism. Why? Um, you know, I'll sort of 
skip around a little bit and, and interrupt me at, at any time. Oh, yeah. But um, uh, God gives commands to five groups, to individuals, to families, to employer employees, to church, to government. Mm -hmm. uh, there are commands for individuals to take care of the poor, among many other things. Preach the gospel, visit the sick. Um, there are no commands for the family to take care of the poor. The commands to the family are husbands, love your wives, and children, submit to your parents, so forth. There's no command for employers or employees to take care of the poor. Those commands are give an honest day's work and don't hold back the wages. Mm. There are commands for the church to take care of the poor. And historically, the church has. The church invented hospitals mm. and medical clinics and orphanages and digging wells and villages and, and all of this, this social programs the church did. There's no command for the government to take care of the poor. The command of the government is the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to get involved in education. There's no command for the government to get involved in healthcare. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. People say, well, the early church, didn't they like sell all their property and the only common thing? And they, yeah, well, they sold the property and they brought the money to the feet of who? The apostles. The apostles. They did not bring the money to the feet of Pilate. They didn't say, here, government leader, here's some more money for the Roman Empire to spread around. No, they brought it to the church. And when the church takes care of the poor, the church wants the poor to end up improving their situation so that they can become successful and they can give to the next person down the line and it can replicate itself. Whenever the government takes care of the poor, the programs are run by people that want to keep their job. And so they, politicians, in a sense, want the poor to stay poor so they can champion the poor. Mm. And the government's uh, bureaucracy, uh, they serve the purpose of taking care of the poor. And they don't want to work themselves out of a job if the poor are no longer there. They're, they won't have a purpose for existing. And the temptation, whenever you have a government person running any program, the temptation is for them to run the program in a way that benefits themselves. In other words, take money away from those that are threatening to eliminate their job and funnel money to supporters who promise to vote them back into office. Mm. Whereas when the church takes care of the poor, they don't do that. They want to help the poor to become successful so they can give to the next poor person down the line. Mm. Now, another phenomenon, when the government gives to the poor, there is ingratitude. It becomes a debt. Instead of it being, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, hey, where's my check? I, I'm this, mm. The month is here. Where's my check, right? It becomes a debt. Uh, and when, the, when a, an individual or the church takes care of the poor, there's gratitude there. And there's a personal mm. relationship that's established that can help disciple that person in the Lord. Mm. Now, last part of this psychological effect is when somebody receives free stuff from the government long enough it hurts their self-esteem they begin to feel bad about them they begin to feel worth less and this negative feeling they want to channel somewhere and they channel this negative feeling toward the entity that is making them feel worthless the very government that's giving them the free stuff they end up hating the very government that's giving them free stuff. And um, so that's the dynamic. Um, so just, there's a great quote from 
Calvin Coolidge. He says, just because something needs to be done does not mean it's the federal government's job to do it. Oh, we need to take care of the poor. Yeah, the church and the individuals are supposed to take care of the poor. Oh, we need to educate. Yeah, it's the church and the individuals that educate. And the families, you know I mean? Don't give the government. The government's only supposed to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And that's the scriptural command. This has been Worldview Clash Class. For more content like this please visit us on the web at clcwaverly.com. Welcome to Worldview Clash Class.